0: While you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now tune in, get ready, and enjoy the journey of emerging as a leader of exception in the 21st century.
1: Welcome, everyone, to the Find Your Leadership Confidence podcast. I'm your host, Vicki Nethling, coming to you from Roswell, Georgia. The goal of this podcast is to share topics and guests that will help you grow as a confident leader, take your business or your life to the next level. Today my guest is Tyler Foley. Let me tell you a little bit about Tyler. Sean Tyler Foley is an accomplished film and stage performer and has been acting in film and television since he was six years old after his father passed away suddenly in a motor vehicle accident. He was Has appeared in productions, including Freddie versus Jason, Door to Door, Carrie, and the Musical Ragtime. (laughs) So there was like two different extremes, obviously. Tyler's passionate about helping others confidently take the stage and impact an audience with their stories. He's currently managing director of Total Buy in and author of the first number one bestselling book, The Power to Speak Naked. (laughs) Today, our theme is when you're afraid to say, what you're afraid to say, I am just totally screwing this up today. So what you're afraid (laughs) to say, your audience needs to hear and and obviously it's okay to make a mistake from time to time. Yes. Please. Join me in welcoming Tyler Foley.
2: <laughs> well, thank you for that, Vicki. I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> so what you're afraid to say, your audience needs to hear. That could probably take us down many, many roads. But first, let's talk about something that's easy, an icebreaker. Where do you call home? Uh, where, where do you live?
2: I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Ah, a joyous place to be right on the, the cusp of the foothills of the Rocky Mountains and the Great Plains. So to the east of me is nothing but wheat fields and to the west of me is incredible scenery and mountains and I get to explore both.
1: Oh, wow. Bet you can get, get some great photography there.
2: Oh, yeah. It's Not only is it stunning photography, but it's also Mm -hmm. incredible cinematography. We have a Ah. a very large and uh, vibrant film industry that comes here. A lot, a lot of uh, movies are are filmed and film and TV is done in and around the area because of the just natural beauty. I mean, we have uh, Badlands that can Mm -hmm. very easily double for, um, you know, very arid, desert type areas and, and, uh, a lot of, uh, like the river valleys and stuff like that. And then we have massive, massive mountains and beautiful, pristine lakes, and then massive and untouched wheat fields. So, you know, everything from ghostbusters the newest ghostbusters was filmed here mm-hmm. um hbo is is currently in town filming the last of us which is their big big tv series which is you know larger and m- even bigger budget than what they were doing for game of thrones so wow. there's a, it's a really vibrant community right now and i'm very blessed and very lucky to be here
1: yeah there's you know nothing to be m- more grateful for, for than to be able to walk out your door and see just all that wonderful land and landscape Makes you mm-hmm. appreciate life so much. Mm-hmm. So, what does it? Um, what do you need to do to make your profile headline be so important that people will take notice of you?
2: Well, I think the the first thing is to embrace who you are. So many people try to. Create this PR spin image of themselves, and I know I was guilty of it too. Um, when I retired from acting at 25, because I'd been acting since I was, <laughs> since. was six. So yeah. at, at, at 20 years old, you know, yeah. 20 years into the into the career, I did what everybody does, and I retire. Um, I remember desperately trying to hide any hint that I had been a performer and an actor off of my resume. And inevitably people would just figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And it it didn't help too, that I had done some modeling. um, And so every once in a while, somebody would be flipping through a magazine and (laughs) see a picture of me, or Mm -hmm. I'd be on a subway billboard or something like that. And and is that you would be like, "Uh, yeah. And they'd be like, well, why do you do that? And It always kind of, you always end up having to explain it. (laughs) And what I realized was the more I tried to like push that down and, 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 Hide it the more it was, uh, it more it surfaced. It, it's it's very much like the telltale heart. If anybody is uh, yeah. familiar with Edgar yes. Allan Poe's tale, mm-hmm. and you know, you try to bury those secrets and they're always going to surface. So, uh, to, to first thing to have a really compelling, um, profile or or uh, very captivating kind of headline is to you know, really go to the heart of who you are. Mm-hmm. And and you know for me you know dynamic performer and engaging speaker uh, right down to you know even the title of my book the power to speak naked it was like what is the one thing that is going to grab people's attention what yeah. what would you preach and that uh, that really came to the forefront that way
1: yeah and no pressure but once you get their attention and then you have to hold it you have to sustain it <laughs> with the content and the the passion and the uh, you know truly. Captivating that audience.
2: Yes. But again, that's why I think it's important to be true to yourself because um, the fastest and easiest way to captivate and keep your audience's attention is to illustrate the lessons that you're trying to give through story. And nobody knows Mm. your story better than you. So if you are honest with your headline up front and it really captures the essence of who you are, then the people are going to be who will be drawn to that. Are going to resonate with your stories and your messages, and then it's yeah. then it's a very easy thing to do. Uh, you just have to be you and 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 tell the world what how you see the world through mm-hmm. your eyes and and explain it that way.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I know. Whenever I coach people, uh, it's you know tell me your story first. Uh, you know, let's spend the next month or two talking about what you know, what you love, what you believe in, because. Then I can see where your strengths are. Then I can see, you know, what I have to work with. And uh, and it allows you also to build that relationship, to be comfortable with one another. And that's what you want to do. You want your audience to feel like, you know, they're talking to your best friend. And and it's cool. and, And you can mess up somebody's name and not feel so bad about it because it's like, well, you know, I didn't die from it. So we can go on to the next
2: thing. (laughs) Lessons learned and we move on. And that's, you know, it's the, it's the great thing. And it, you know, even live, I think one of the other things too is I've, I've been on stage now for almost four decades. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I have never given a perfect performance or speech. (laughs) That's four decades worth of work, hundreds, if not thousands of stages that I've stood on. And uh, one of the beautiful things is is getting to learn from each one of those, um, the times where you come close, uh, figuring out what went right and duplicating Mm -hmm. that. And then, you know, being honest with your audience. You know, I, hey, you know, I, I just messed up a little bit there. So let's back it up <laughs> and recorrect. And that's and that's perfectly okay yeah. too. I think an audience would rather you be authentic and own your mm-hmm. your mistake than than to try and pass it off like you, it never happened.
1: Yeah, and that kind of leads me really nicely to the next question, because it's how do I get over stage fright? And, and where does that stage fright actually come from?
2: Well, and that's a real question. So um, stage fright, first of all, very real thing. People mm-hmm. genuinely do experience stage fright. The, where most people um, get confused is, is saying that they're afraid of public speaking. And that is actually not true at all. Very, very, very few people on the planet are actually afraid of public speaking. Does that exist? Yes. But is it a phobia that is present the way that most of us perceive it? No. Um, if we were actually afraid of public speaking commerce, as we know, it would collapse. Uh, if anybody has ever been to a restaurant and ordered food, you're not afraid of public speaking yeah. because you spoke in public. Not only that, <laughs> if you didn't know your wait staff, you very likely spoke to a stranger and You asked, if you got the food that you had asked for, uh, you received what you asked for. So this um, misconception that we're afraid to speak in public, we're afraid to speak to strangers, and we're afraid to ask for what we want is completely and totally null and void if you have ever been to a restaurant, talked to a waiter that you didn't know, and received the food that you wanted. And the reality is stage fright is coming from a fear of public judgment.
0: This fear that
2: when we put ourselves out there, that when we express our point of views, or when we give people a glimpse of who we are, that we will be negatively perceived, that we will be negatively judged, we may be misunderstood, um, and we will somehow be less than, which is hilarious, because as most people know, if you've been given a platform and a stage, you are instantly viewed as an authority. So you're not less than, you're in fact, more than as a perception goes. And and it's really embracing that so the the fear of public speaking is is not a thing but the fear of public judgment is and that is what leads to stage fright and so if you want to get over stage fright the f- thing that you actually need to get around is this fear of public judgment this perception that people will be viewing you negatively if you are the center of attention mm-hmm. And, and
1: kind of getting to the root of where that all came from, which obviously usually is from our past, you know, whether yep. it be our family, our teachers or
2: friends. Well, and it's, it's funny that, you, that those are the first two that come to mind because the majority of the clients that I work with, that's usually mm-hmm. the, the two scenarios. You've either grown up in a uh, environment where children were to be seen and not heard. And that was regularly reinforced through various different disciplines um, where you had a negative association to the use of your voice and were positively reinforced when you didn't speak up. And that created this underlying pattern that my voice doesn't matter or that I need to diminish my voice so that I can be accepted uh, publicly and socially. The other very very common incident is somebody being called upon usually in an early elementary grade um, and by a teacher when they were not prepared and mm-hmm. either saying the wrong thing or just not knowing what to say period and usually the class laughing at them uh, a very negative association with a frustration of knowing what to say or how to say it or having said a thing that was perceived to be wrong and therefore again that that association comes with, if I just don't speak, I am safe, I'm protected. And it's the the irony is, is it's usually only one or two incidents that create that patterned Mm. belief, where if you look at the number of times you regularly communicate with people and you're not shut down (laughs) for using your voice, but we never perceive that. It's always those really impactful ones that set the tone for how we go forward. That's where I'm incredibly blessed to, A, have taken the stage at six years old before I really had any fear developed around it, right? Fear is a learned behavior. Anybody Mm -hmm. who's had small children knows they have no fear of anything. And you have to say this, you can't do that. This is dangerous or this, you know, and it's through learned behavior that we Mm -hmm. understand where fear needs to come from. And uh, so for me, I didn't understand that I needed to be afraid of an audience. In mm-hmm. fact, my first interaction with an audience was joyful, pleasurable, and incredible. It's, it's a high I've been seeking my entire life after <laughs> to have received a standing ovation at yeah. six years old is, wow. is just an awe-inspiring thing. And I also had the um, good fortune to be raised in a household where my opinion was solicited and valued and i was encouraged to speak Mm -hmm. um and so those things created positive reinforcement Mm -hmm. for the use of my voice i'm also incredibly blessed to be a white middle-class male so uh, i have never really experienced anybody trying to oppress my voice for any reason Uh, i just am default to being able to use my voice so all of these things have Created an environment for me where I am comfortable speaking, and now it's my mission to make sure that everybody can experience that same feeling.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you um, mentioned a, a little bit about your story, and our stories are so powerful. I think, I think it's so important that we know what our passion is and that is to uh, answer the question of what's your why so how did how do you discover your why or how did you discover your why in uh, going from acting to okay now what's next how did you discover your why
2: well, the funny thing is, is the the why, you know, and Simon Sinek really kind of put a focus on it with his work. Mm-hmm. Um, mine, and I, I think where people struggle is they feel that they have to have this one underlying root push, right? Mm-hmm. That This this is one thing that drives them and makes them. And the reality is, is we as human beings are very complex and there is never any one given thing that pushes you forward. And my why has changed, um, yeah. you know, quite not, I wouldn't say quite frequently, but has evolved over time. Um, initially, you know, before I was married or a father, I was doing a lot of things were driven for a need for importance, right? A mm-hmm. need for recognition. And that was, you know, maybe even more deeply rooted in the fact that I did not have a father and was seeking the approval of a ghost. Oh. And that probably drove me for a very long time. And then, as I got married, the the need to be a provider and to um, you know, keep my wife, <laughs> frankly, mm-hmm. in in a, a era of you know, very high divorce rates, where over, Half of, of marriages will dissolve. I don't want to be that statistic, and and I don't know why that's so deep rooted in me. Probably because it's very deep rooted in my wife, because she came from a family of divorce, and uh, so I, you know, I'm now that was a real driving factor for me was to make sure that I I was a provider for my wife, that I that I was making a life for us, and and most of my decisions then would be. Re- would revolve around how am I doing that and now it's further amplified being a father yeah I was thinking that you know now it's it's a life and I'm responsible it's it's one thing when you're um, jointly responsible for each other but it's another thing when you're solely responsible for another human being um, Mm -hmm. completely uh, at least initially and so that really became a focus for me and a lot of times the why is a is a a very simple thing. Like what is, what is that root driving motivator? And if you can really drill down to what your core values are, Mm -hmm. that usually gives some pretty good insight into why you do the things that you do. And the other thing is, is I don't know that it's important that we discover it. As long as you're aware that you are acting on impulses and if you can become um, acutely aware of, how your decision-making process goes, so that it is you are doing it consciously as opposed to subconsciously. I think that has the greatest impact on your ability to do anything that you want to do.
1: Right. I so agree that you know we are very complex. I mean, in in the over sixty years that I've been around, I have had my why change many times, and, and maybe not change as much as evolve. Yeah. And. And I think that that's what makes us interesting. I have, you know, I have this job and then I have my project management job and then I have my anti-aging job and all of those fulfill me. And I think that's what our why needs to do. Yeah. It, it fills that, um, fills your soul, I guess.
2: Well, and one of those things is too, is a lot of times you'll find a common thread in between them. So again, for me, the, for a time, it was definitely significance. Like mm-hmm. I wanted significance, and all the things that I was doing, I was still trying to have a title and prestige. And that significance has evolved, where I still enjoy recognition, but it isn't the underlying base motivator for it. Now it is a real need to of for service. Mm-hmm. I find great satisfaction in, in service now. And again, that evolved with around the time of my daughter's birth, where it didn't it, it, it made it very clear to me that it didn't matter what my status or my title was or how many likes I got on a post on Facebook or you know, how many people attended one of my seminars. All of those things were, irrelevant metrics and frankly, out of my control. What was in my control was when those people did show up, how did I serve them? Mm-hmm. And if it was only three people who watched a video on Facebook or LinkedIn or YouTube, did they get value when they, when they stopped mm-hmm. by? And the more I focused on that, the more those vanity metrics grew <laughs> and, uh, and the less and less I cared about it. It was really, mm-hmm. really quite strange. Um, in fact, even my, I, I, I revived my film and television career. Um, my, my agent had phoned and said, you know, we've got a lot of work that is now happening in the area. Would you be interested in auditioning to some of these things? And I said, sure. I don't, I didn't. And the thing is, I stopped caring if I booked the role. Yeah. And ironically, <laughs> when I stopped caring if I booked the role, I've booked more in the last three years than I did in the previous decade and a half.
3: Yeah.
1: I I find myself and now I have two grandchildren and all my life when I had my two daughters and um, I started to do things to make them see the possibilities. You know, I came from a a family and my parents are still alive. They're going to be married 66 years. And uh, I just yesterday celebrated my 43rd anniversary. And I, I try to do things that will show my daughters that they can be anything they really put their mind to, as long as they do the work. And, um, and it's, you know, something that they love. But for my grandchildren, now, I, I find that as I talk to them and work with them, it, it's, I I just want to keep on making sure that I'm not setting limits to them by mm-hmm. saying things that that might make them not be confident you know it, i'm just i guess because this is what i do now but i'm just so much more aware of how our words can be so impactful yeah and uh, uh, positively or negatively right
2: it's one of the things that I am uh, very hyper-conscious of, even in my interactions with my daughter. She'll be turning seven at the end of July. And, um, you know, there's times where, <laughs> especially like right now when I'm doing work and, you know, mm-hmm. it's close to bath time for her and she wants wow. some attention and, and I need her to be quiet for this time. But I'm very um, conscious of how I express that. so this is this is my time when when daddy's at his desk or when he's in his studio Mm -hmm. that is quiet time you can always knock and you know ask unless the recording light is on and then we don't make any noise whatsoever but after that i am available before and after we can chat about whatever you want or if i need to concentrate on a thing it's not a be quiet it's a i need five minutes for me so that because i need quiet for me but i And interested in what you have to say, um, we can find a time to do that, so that she doesn't ever feel that her voice or her opinion is diminished. Yeah. But you know, I still need to parent like quiet time. It's time for (laughs) this is this is now time. Yeah, understand
1: the boundaries.
2: Yeah, but it's being aware of how our language impacts uh, not only ourselves but those around us, and trying to be a little bit more conscious of it. Um, you know, I, I used to do a thing to my wife that drove her crazy. I would, I would justify a, a sentence up front with, I love you, but. And she's like, <laughs> do not do that ever again. And, you know, and she called me out on it. And, I, and then I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I get why that is not a thing to do. And, uh, and so I've, I, have, I have amended my language. <laughs> um, so the
1: power of the story is is just that, it's so powerful. But I think people struggle with how to tell a story. How do you make a story compelling when they think their lives isn't? I I, I don't know, I hear this all the time whenever I'm at a Toastmaster meeting or whatnot, it's like, oh, well, nobody wants to hear about me, I'm boring. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you make
2: your story compelling? Well, so the first thing is, is to recognize that everybody does have a story. Mm. everybody has a story in fact everybody has many 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 stories and we just Mm. tend to minimize or diminish them because we usually in that result we're doing a a comparison to somebody else and forgetting that there are people who compare themselves to us and wish that they were us there's somebody out there no matter where you are in life or what your station is somebody is going they're better off than me
3: Mm.
2: you know and it, it, it doesn't take much for envy to creep in. And that's usually where our, those comparisons and our diminishing of our own self-worth comes from. So the first thing to recognize is that you do have a story. In fact, anybody listening to this right now, Vicky, uh, can do a very quick exercise that I do in every one of my workshops. That, and that is to take your age, round it up to the nearest, well, round it to the nearest five, whether that's rounding up or rounding down take that number and divide it by five and that will give you five even time periods or epochs in your life. Mm. So if I was to do this exercise right now, because my birthday's coming up, right now I'm 42. So I would round down to 40, divide by five, and that would give me five even time periods of eight years each. Uh, next month, <laughs> if I was to do this, I would round up to 45, divided by five. And that would give me five even time periods of nine years mm-hmm. each. And if anybody's out there, because I know, because there's always the A type who is like, no, 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 but that's not precise. Um, if, you, <laughs> if you need to have the precise value, uh, if you had to round down, take whatever that remainder was and tack it on to the beginning time period. So for me, that eight years would become 10. And then we tack on eight years after that for each one. And uh, if you had to round up you subtract what you rounded by. Again, it's only going to be one or two
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, from your last time period because it's usually hard to remember what happened our first two years of life, but we can remember what happened last year fairly quickly. Yeah, true. So if you if you do need to be precise, you can do that. If you don't, w- just stick with the eight years and be happy. Right. And when you get to your last time period, just be like, and then this one, um, and then for each one of those epochs or time periods ask yourself and you can only take 30 seconds per time period because it needs to be the first thing that pops to mind because if it isn't the first thing that pops to mind you're overthinking this and you're overdoing Mm -hmm. it what is my first memory from that time period that's all you have to ask yourself what is my first memory from that time period for me if i was to do this the very first memory that springs to mind six years old christmas play first grade the sound of, of applause that people gave me when I was on stage and mm-hmm. that feeling
3: yeah.
2: that came with a standing ovation. That's my first memory. It's not my first memory, but it's the first memory that comes to mind when I think about that time period, that yeah. age of my life. And then I have many others that spiral from that, but that's the first one. And it's that exploration of what is because those are usually our most significant memories. And they could be anything. They could be a color, they could be a sound, they could be a feeling, they could be a distinct image. they could be, you know, a mini movie in our head. But something stands out when you mm-hmm. think of each one of those time periods and springs to mind. the the real exploration comes after. So that's a two minute exercise, two and a half minutes tops. Mm-hmm. But where the fun comes in is taking an hour to, eight, a week, a month, and exploring why, does that, why is it that memory? Why is that one the one that springs to mind first? And then when you can figure out the significance behind that memory, what are the lessons that come from it? What did you need to know? Where were you at in that stage of your life? What lessons did you need to learn? What lessons did you learn? Uh, what lessons did you wish you knew? If you could go back to speak to yourself, all of those are those Mm. exploratory questions that will then give your memory context. And then as Les Brown says, we never make a point without a story. We never tell a story without a point. Telling that story of why that memory is significant to you will matter based on what those lessons are. So your audience will, you could retell that story a thousand different ways. Right. And highlight a different point of it to to make, to impart a different lesson, depending on who your audience is and what your audience needs to know. But everybody has at least five stories, guaranteed. Yeah, for sure. And to make that interesting, to your other question, where most people get storytelling wrong is they try to be the hero of their story. Yeah. If you were to look at Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey model, everybody tries to be the hero. And and talk about them and why they're great. And, you know, these are the things that I've overcome and gone through. And when you put it in that, it's very ego-driven. And because we as human beings tend to put ourselves first, if I'm telling you a story about how great I am, you're tuning out. Yeah, for sure. Right. The reality is, if you want to tell a very compelling story, Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey is a very great story structure to use. But what you need to remember is that you are not the hero, you are the sage. So in the hero's journey model, we have a hero who is usually in a state of unaware and then gets put into, it has some conflict that puts them into turmoil. They then meet their sage and or mentor. And that sage or mentor guides them through a series of trials and tribulations for them to then gain the knowledge that they need to overcome the principal adversary. And then, you know, learn the lesson that needs to the final lesson that learn needs to be learned before they have their journey home. So when you're telling your story, you are not Luke Skywalker. You're Obi-Wan Kenobi. Mm-hmm. You are the person who comes and imparts knowledge to that apprentice, so that they can then grow in the knowledge that you have already gained. Mm-hmm. And it's telling them the story that, yes, I, you know, I fought in the Clone Wars with your father. Okay, tell me more about that. Show me the ways of the Force. Don't tell mm-hmm. me how great a Jedi Knight yeah. you were. Yeah. And if I lost everybody at Star Wars, then you can make no, it Harry Potter. And so, you know,
1: the- <laughs> so, as you were doing, just talking about that, I immediately went Luke Skywalker. And it was like, I was going to say, well, that's such a great way because we have to see his imperfections, we have to see yeah. his struggles, we have to understand his pain because it's relatable. It, it, yeah. It's where we see ourselves in the story that makes us want to know more because now but, it's about them, you know, not about, it's not about me, the author. It's, it's about the person who's listening.
2: Exactly. And we're, we're speaking to them because we have been there before. And I think that's, yeah. that's the big thing is a sen- is setting up that credibility of mm-hmm. I've been, this is where I was now, this is where I'm at. And, and in fact, that is usually a lens into your who, what and who your ideal audience is. Your Mm -hmm. ideal audience is very likely you five to 10 years ago.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Absolutely. And the
2: stories that you tell support Mm -hmm. where you were and where you needed to get to Mm -hmm. based on, on those, you know, very significant impactful moments in your life that when you think about it without having to think about it, come to you instantaneously. And those are the things that will inform you. And the more you speak to that, again, it becomes that authenticity right? Mm -hmm. Authenticity is synonymous with self-awareness. If you don't know who you are, you'd be able to be able to teach. And a lot of times people are trying to speak from their wounds instead of their scars and the wounds are still open and festering. So really the best thing that you can do is, is, is speak from those healed places because that's how you help other people heal.
1: And it's really because those are the, those are the moments that you began to believe in yourself. And when you believe in yourself, then that vulnerability, you're not afraid of it. You're, you don't have the fear of that. You you are able to be authentic to your audience because you know that you like yourself. You, you like who you've become.
2: Yeah. I mean, we all have gifts. I mean, it, it speaks to your mission of why you put together Find Your Leadership Confidence, right? That Everyone has a gift and it's our yeah. our really our true calling is to leave the world a better place than where mm-hmm. we found it based on those gifts that we have. I remember reading a, a wonderful story. I just had my 25th year high school reunion and so um, high school reunion stories have been popping up because I was saying reunion a whole bunch and Google was listening <laughs> and uh, and I read a wonderful story about... Um, a boy who, I can't remember if he was autistic. He was on the spectrum, I believe. And his comfort was uh, yo-yos. And he used to love yo-yos. Very mm-hmm. smart and, and was picked on a lot in high school because of yo-yos. Anyway, he goes to his 20 or 25 year reunion and everybody's kind of like, who are you? And, you know, trying to remember. And uh, this now man had dedicated his life to learning the the yo-yos. And somebody asked him, he said, oh, I remember you, you're the kid with the yo-yos. He's like, yep. He's like, do you still do the yo-yos? And I guess he pulled out this custom-made titanium yo-yo and started doing tricks at the reunion. And everybody gathered around and watched him. And everybody, everybody, whether they used to pick on him or support him or didn't even know who he was at that point, embraced him and were Mm. so happy to be entertained by this true talent that he had. And, and, you know, that's somebody who, you know, knew what they loved and just did the thing that they loved and didn't care what anybody else said or thought or did. Can -hmm. you imagine if he hadn't have pursued that because everybody in high school beat it out of him? Yeah. You know, but this was a, this was a thing and we all have that gift. We Mm -hmm. all have that gift. Like I said, I tried to hide the fact that I was a performer for years and years and years. And it wasn't until I found that through line of what makes me successful and when I'm when am I successful? What am I doing? And when I am not as successful, what is it that I'm doing or not doing? Yeah. And what I found was I'm successful when I can speak. <laughs> I'm successful when I can perform. And when I try to hide that, when I try to diminish that, when I try to make my light less bright, that is when I typically yeah. have my biggest struggles. And so I've just had to embrace it.
1: Yeah. Awesome. <clears throat> I think that kind of covers, um, Whenever we think of ourselves in business now, one of the first things that our coaches usually ask us okay, well, let's figure out what your client avatar is. Mm-hmm. How do you determine client avatar?
2: Yeah. And and it's exactly what we had talked about earlier that it's you five to 10 years ago, ideally is probably who you're going to talk to. And if, if for whatever reason that doesn't resonate with you and you're like, no, 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 Tyler, that is hundred percent wrong. I will say, okay, the other way to determine your avatar. And I've used both of these very, very, very successfully to, Mm -hmm. um, to reach the people who need to be reached Uh, your other avatar. If it's not you five to 10 years ago, Is who comes to you the most and what advice do they do? Are you asked the most? And be very specific. Uh, For me, the question I get asked the most is, How do you do that? And it's in the context of how is it that you can just get up on stage and talk to people without even blinking? And the people who ask it to me the most are typically, um, female entrepreneurs and uh, C-suite business executives uh, in typically mission driven enterprises. So charities or mm. businesses with a high social component and who have been placed into a leadership position out of their passion for the work, right. but who do not feel confident in the authority that they've been given and um, with the title, and that is typically uh, who comes to me the most for that one bit of advice of how do you do what you do, and so for me, I have two very clear, very distinct, very different avatars. One of them, uh, female executive uh, who is in a leadership position, she does not feel comfortable in in a very social conscious um, pursuit, who is uncomfortable being the spotlight and taking center stage. And if she could, would have more impact with her social cause. Um, And then the other one is a, um, you know, creative entrepreneur male, uh, mid thirties to forties, who is um, struggling finding stages, but is very confident being on stage. Cause that was me. I just didn't know. I didn't have the direction on how to get there. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted it. I just didn't know how to get there. Mm-hmm. And so I have two very distinct and and different avatars that require different needs. And so, you know, we have different avenues for each one of those that come in to, to my business and into right. my funnels. But it's knowing that those are the, those are probably your two biggest ways of discovering your avatar. Who are you five to 10 years ago and speak to that and who comes to you the most for advice and what are they asking and then replicate that and deliver it.
3: Perfect.
1: So I I have to, for this next question, it kind of goes back to all of my 25 years of Toastmasters because these are are questions that I get all the time as a mentor. How do I give a better, more engaging presentation?
2: That's very simple. (laughs) Um, first of all, don't be worried, despite you being in Toastmasters, if you are Toastmasters, this will be, this will ring true to you. Don't worry about your filler words. I've probably used (laughs) at least 12 over the course of this interview, if not more, (laughs) you didn't care and neither did I. So if you're using it, it's a natural part of speech. Don't use them as crutches. We should, if you notice that every, um, other, um, word is, um, that's a problem, right? Being paranoid about ever using a filler word is going to be detrimental to you. Your audience won't notice if it's a part of natural conversation. The real key to being engaging is the, your presentation and your speech is not about you. Your presentation and your speech is about your audience. Somehow you need to leave that audience better than how you found them, whether that's providing them education or an, uh, an experience, or even just making them laugh or taking them away from where they are for a moment, you need to leave your audience better. And so if you want a more engaging presentation, you want to bring your audience in, bring your audience in, don't talk to them. And one of the worst things that you can do is memorize your speech point for point for point. Do not do that. That is, that no. is, that is uh, an invitation to your audience's lobotomy. No, never never, yeah. go ahead. I was well, just going gonna... to. You <laughs> finish, Vicky.
1: <laughs> no, I. I was just going to say when I work with the youth, that's one of the things that I have to unlearn them is that the best speech they will ever give is a conversation. And yes. I never want them to. I, you can just write down three things on a sheet of paper, and that's the only thing I want you to memorize. Because each of those things, you have a conversation with me, a story. Mm-hmm. About each of those things,
2: so. And much what better. I like to explain to all of my clients and anybody who will listen, uh-huh. though, and it is those bullet points. Those bullet points are the waypoints along the journey that you're going to take your audience. Those are the places that you know you need to take them to. The advantage to having waypoints is maybe sometimes you have to skip over one. Yeah. You know, you can't get there. The bridge is down. You can't cross that river. And if you are locked into a uh into a speech you are limiting your ability to traverse and portage around the obstacles that come towards you mm-hmm.
3: you know
2: if i needed to come visit you in georgia i have a thousand options yeah and you know the nice thing is for those who believe it the globe is round and so i have <laughs> multiple directions that i can set off and mm-hmm. still end up where you are um <laughs> And I have various modes of transportation, but when I get locked into a script, it's like me saying that I'm going to rent a Cessna from the Calgary International Airport and fly down to you. And the problem with that is I'm betting you don't have a runway at your address <laughs> at Cessna. So I you can't even serve me when I get to the end of that point, and therefore I haven't served you. And Where the reality is maybe I hop in a car And maybe the border is closed. So then I drive east and or west to my nearest water port. And now I get onto a boat and I start going around. And when I find my port of entry, now I rent a motorcycle or a moped, or I get a pedal bike because (laughs) gas is just obnoxiously expensive and I can't (laughs) afford it right now. All of these things become options. And that's why we have waypoints. These are our bullet points. I know that I need to talk about this, this, and this. If I need to, I can abandon one or two of those as long as I get to the end, right? It's getting your audience to that end destination. That's important. How you get them there matters less. Mm -hmm. Locking yourself into a script gives you only one mode of transportation and one way of getting there. If you give yourself bullet points, you have waypoints that you can hit along the way, which is always great because eventually the kids need to go to the bathroom and you need a break. So if you're locked into a script, there ain't nobody pee until we get there.
1: So, so the good thing too is, is whenever you have those organic kind of things, I love to be in my speeches to be interactive because it, you, you discover what the audience needs to hear. And, mm-hmm. and sometimes it, the, you might've hit two of the things that they needed to hear, but as you listen actively, you, dis, you discover, okay, they need me to go down this road that I hadn't planned on, but I can do that. And, uh, and sometimes that's where people
2: get frightened. And mm-hmm. that's well, they... and as to the title of this episode, you want to be truly compelling and engaging with your audience. The thing you're afraid to say is probably what your ideal audience needs to hear. Yeah. And, and the problem is everybody tries to please everybody. Stop trying to do that. If you can speak to one person, that's the one person who needs to hear you. Um, And it's funny, the more specific you can be, the more universal your message will land. Mm -hmm. And the opposite is then inversely true. The more universal you try to speak, the less likely your message is to land. So uh, get specific and you'll be surprised at how, how many people are impacted by the words you have. This
1: has been so interesting and I I could talk to you for hours, but um, my time is kind of running out or your time is kind of running out. I I would like to get into one last formal question, then we'll do a rapid fire. Mm -hmm. So what would you, what advice would you like to give to your 20 year old self?
2: Uh, That there's power in your story and your story is constantly evolving and changing. And the more you can tell it, the more impact and influence you will have. Okay. Keep a journal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Keep a journal. I do. I, <laughs> one of the greatest um, graduation presents I ever received, and I actually just um, came across it today, uh, actually. So it's fresh in mind. Uh, uh, one of my mother's friends, Monica Newhouse, on my 18th birthday and just after my graduation, gave me a journal and she said, you know, write down everything that happens. And that journal got filled up within about six months because I'd moved out to Vancouver and I journaled almost every day. And it was the start of my professional career away from my house where I was living on my own and being only a professional actor and reflecting back on a lot of what was important to me then makes me smile. So yes, I would <laughs> strongly encourage people to keep journals. I've kept yeah. one for every year since then. And it's, it's fun to go back.
1: Yep. All right. The rapid fire part. So what are some benefits of diverse experience?
2: Oh, being able to see the world through other people's eyes and being able to experience things that you wouldn't otherwise get to experience. One of the greatest gifts I've ever given myself is the gift of travel and to, and travel beyond my borders, whether that's my town, my state, my country, um, I remember moving to Malaysia for six months and mm-hmm. and getting fully immersed. Like I lived in a kampung, right, you know, part of a rice paddy, um, a village of rice farmers, and truly experiencing what others would deem to be poverty and understanding the abundance that was available there and how life was so fulfilled with with practically nothing. I was and simplicity. Yeah, it, yeah I, it's actually embarrassing for me to look around my house sometimes at just the amount of stuff we have and how very little of it we actually need.
3: Yeah.
1: Encouraging people to be heard and understood.
2: What's the question? <laughs>
1: so so when, when I say that, what comes to mind?
2: Though? Uh, um. I, 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 how then, important,
1: How? let's do it this way. How important is it to you in your life right now that your mission is to encourage people to be heard and understood?
2: Well, it's paramount because I think everybody has a story, especially right now, particularly in this day and age where um, opinion has been confused with fact um, and fact has been confused with opinion. And fact has been confused with truth and truth has been confused with honesty. Mm. All of these things are words that we use and I don't think we've actually truly understood what they mean. And I think um, taking time to understand people is, mm-hmm. is crucial. And then being able to uh, show people how to communicate effectively so that I can understand your point of view and you can understand my point of view, understanding that we don't have to agree, mm. but we have sympathy for each other, or, or at the very least empathy for each other. And I think that, you know, that's really driving the masthead of my mission statement. Like finding harmony through communication, I think is how we're going to solve a lot of these issues is when we get back to actually being able to communicate, as opposed to talk at each other, to actually listen to each other.
1: And, and I loved how you, you said, You don't always have to agree, Mm -mm. but you do have to respect one another. Mm -hmm. So you have a a statement in your bio where you say showing up powerfully behind the mic. What were Mm -hmm. the, what was the thought behind that?
2: Because again, we'd alluded to it earlier where people tend to diminish themselves. And if you are given a platform, a microphone of any sort, Whether that's, again, whether that's a Facebook live, whether that's a presentation in the boardroom, or it's an actual microphone on a stage with a large auditorium or a small intimate group. I want everybody to feel like they are the authority that they actually are because otherwise they wouldn't have been given that platform, even if you've given yourself that platform, especially in the age of social media. Somebody is watching, and if that somebody is watching, how are you serving them? So I want you to be able to show up powerfully behind that microphone each and every time so that you can serve that audience, however small or large they are, to the best of your ability. And uh, that's stepping into your greatness, understanding what your gifts are, what is going to allow you to be authentic, which will allow you to be powerful and take advantage of the your gifts so that you can do good in the world.
1: One person at a time.
2: One person at a time. And oftentimes that first person is you. Yeah, <laughs> very true.
1: The last two years have been crazy. I think there's been a lot of opportunities, you know, a lot of pain, a lot of, a lot of things that maybe we aren't so pleased or proud of. But I think we had a, have had a lot of, Lessons that we've learned. What have you learned in these past two years about yourself, your family?
2: Um, that everybody needs to be given a bit of grace. And that, you know, nobody's perfect, including me. And I need to remember that each and every time. It like gets real easy to hold judgment uh, initially but there's, there's nothing anybody can't do that you would haven't done or thought of yourself, even for an fleeting instant. That's mm-hmm. one of the great teachings that I learned from jo- Dr. John D. Martini and taking the breakthrough experience was, you know, there's a yin and yang to everything. And uh, the more that we can recognize that we all have every trait that every other person has, uh, that no one person is just one thing and, mm-hmm. um, you know, and that everybody deserves at least a little bit of grace. Uh, They don't necessarily need to demand your time, but you do need to give everybody grace and understanding.
1: Absolutely. And the last one is, what are you most grateful for now?
2: (laughs) For my health and my time, especially right now. Um, You know, I, (laughs) I was... I had to go down and speak in Dallas, so I had to cross the border, which meant COVID testing and all the rest of that at the end of May. And both my wife and my daughter came down with COVID um, four days before I had to travel. And the fear, particularly that my daughter had because of the fear that my wife had, uh, was heartbreaking Mm. uh, because they didn't want to be near me because they didn't want to get me sick. They didn't want to jeopardize the travel. I mean, it jeopardizes our so many things if I can't travel and being both grateful for my health that I, that apparently I I managed to dodge it, even though we're in a house and constantly in contact with each other, um, right down to, you know, when my daughter got tested, we test, she was asymptomatic and I was going to get my test for my flight the day, the next day. And, uh, we tested her just, you know, as a peace of mind thing, she came back positive. I came back negative and, you know, just her being scared and, and me, me feeling that that shouldn't be the case. So, um, so grateful for my health, the time that I have to do the things that I do for the people who listen to me and that I can have, that I can serve. And then to my family for their support and their love. And the fact that they're still here, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, I'm grateful for it all every day.
3: Awesome.
1: Well, this has been so wonderful Uh, right now. It's time for those that are listening in. Uh, This is my warning that I'm going to share my screen. So get Mm -hmm. out your pens and pencils so that you can get Tyler's information and uh, hear about what he has to give you. So his website is HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash WWW Sean that's S E A N Tyler T Y L E R Foley dot com. So WWW Sean Tyler, T-Y-L-E-R Foley, He's on social media, he's on Facebook, Sean Tyler Foley, Instagram, Sean Tyler Foley, LinkedIn, Sean Tyler Foley. You made it so easy, no numbers or things at the end, that's awesome. He's on Twitter, drop the mic, STF. What's STF?
2: (laughs) Sean Tyler Foley.
1: Oh my goodness, I didn't catch that, so drop the mic. STF for Sean Tyler Foley. Excellent. He's on YouTube, as I mentioned, check him out there and uh, please share about your um, gift that you're giving them.
2: Yeah. So it would be my joy and my pleasure. If anybody is listening to find your leadership confidence and is enjoying the content that you are providing Vicki, if uh, they could do me a favor before they take my free gift And that is to give you a five-star review if they're enjoying the content that they're giving or receiving from you. Um, Because it's important to me that if I'm going to give something that that you get something in return. And the thing that I can offer you is to encourage your listeners to go and give you a five-star review. And if they are willing to do that as a thank you, um, from me to you for giving me this platform and the opportunity to reach out to them, uh, then I would invite them to come to either one of the websites. So, seantylerfoley.com, my main website, right on the front landing page, we have uh, a link to Endless Stages, or they can go straight to endlessstages.com. Either way, they are going to be enrolled in our Endless Stages Facebook group, which um, is a wonderful free community. Of like minded entrepreneurs and speakers who are looking to grow together um, under some guidance from me and my business partner, Michael. When you sign up through the website, as opposed to just going to Facebook, I'm going to give everyone um, who signs up that way a free PDF download of my number one best selling book, The Power to Speak Naked. We also give you access to my uh, training video series, which is called Drop the Mic. And I go live inside of that Facebook group every Tuesday at noon Pacific, three Eastern to provide live training for the group based on the discussion that's come out of the group from that week. So some people are looking to find better stages. Some people are looking how – to leverage podcasts, to, um, sell more of their books. If they're a self-published author and some people are looking to get over stage fright, whatever happens to be the topic or the theme that comes up that week, me and Michael will look through all the chat. And then we come live for 20 minutes and do a quick training session, depending on who shows up on the call. We might even do a hot seat so you can get some one-on-one focused attention from us. And for everybody who comes through, uh, provided they give you the five-star review, Vicky, only if they give you the five-star <laughs> review, come through on through either endlessstages.com or seantylerfoley.com. Um, we do send them an invite for a private 20-minute one-on-one session with me. And that isn't one of those weird, triage coaching things (laughs) where I get come in and ask you how you're doing, where you're struggling, and then try to pitch you an $8,000 coaching package. (laughs) That is strictly a, however you want to use those 20 minutes. You have questions for me about public speaking. I download my 40 years of experience and, and answer your questions to the best of my ability and help you in whatever way uh, you need help with. So it's up to you to determine how to use those 20 minutes. And I come to serve however you need it.
1: Awesome. I just love you, Tyler Foley. Honest to gosh. That is Tyler Foley. It has been wonderful. We have gone way longer than I normally do, but so many good things and uh, so, so much wisdom in your young body. (laughs) You're almost half my age. Okay, so there you go. But it's been wonderful talking with you. I wish you and your family all the best. And uh, we'll definitely have to do this again sometime. And um, please do go to his website. Take advantage of that Facebook. That weekly training sounds like a wonderful gift. And I encourage you to uh, comment on Facebook whenever you check out that site. Check out the YouTube as well and uh, look for him on some of those movies I mentioned early on. See if you can see him in his younger film days. So until next time, remember life is a journey and it's up to you to enjoy the ride. This is Vicki Nettling signing off.